When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I'm here with Michael McMullen. You may remember about a year ago we did, uh, well, a much-celebrated niche podcast about growing up watching snooker in the 80s, the boom years and all that, and it was so successful, we've taken a year to do a sequel, and it's going to be about snooker in the 90s. It's quite a general brief, uh, to say the least, but it was. It's, we always talk about the 80s as a sort of golden age, and obviously at the moment we, we feel that snooker's really taken off, but the 90s as well was such a busy period. It was a time where the game really grew, new players came in, the game went open, a lot of money came into the sport, new tournaments cropped up, snooker went international, it wasn't just uh, British. And also, I think, Michael, it was, there was a change of the guard, wasn't there? Because all the, the sort of big names of the 80s who'd made the sport started to be replaced by, by new faces. Yeah, it was a crossover period, because actually, if you look at the mid-90s, you had so many of the game's greats being top players at the same time, because you still had Steve Davis. I mean, he was still number two until well into the mid-90s. Stephen Hendry, obviously. Jimmy White, John Parrott were still very good players. But you also had Ronnie O'Sullivan and John Higgins, Mark Williams coming through and establishing themselves. Um, you think back to about 95, you also had the likes of McManus, Ebden, uh, even great world champions like Griffiths and Taylor, and even Alex Higgins to some extent were still around in the mid-90s. So it was an unbelievable time in terms of, you look at the ranking list from around that era, the top 16, so many of the players you would regard as being among the all-time greats. But we were all waiting, I think, you know, for that indefinable moment when the new era took over. And uh, it was inevitable that, that that was going to happen, that the stars of the past were going to be replaced, simply because the guys that were coming along were just so good. And it was an inevitable product, wasn't it, of the 80s. So many people were taking up the game, so many young kids, particularly in Britain. It was inevitable that a number of really, really special players were going to emerge. It's obviously a numbers thing, like we're seeing a bit now with China, mm. so many players coming through. And uh, th the game just did change so much in that time. Matches became quicker. Uh, everyone wanted to be like Jimmy White, a lot of these you know, new guys who were coming into the game, including to some extent Stephen Hendry, who obviously the 90s was his golden age. Uh, they were all coming along trying to emulate those players, play in that style. You didn't have many players coming along wanting to be the new Eddie Charlton. <laughs> no, and also what, what changed was, and this, this was 
largely down to Steve Davis, I think, in the 80s, the game became, became more professional in as much as people saw playing snooker as a profession. Because mm. the early players couldn't earn any money. You know, they would slog around holiday camps. There were no tournaments, really. There might be one tournament a year. Alex Higgins had the World Championship in 1972 and didn't earn much for that. But they slogged around and they didn't see playing full-time snooker as a career. But, of course, the explosion of interest in the 80s... Uh, changed all that people started to look at Davis the way he conducted himself and also the, the money he was earning mm. as well and along comes Stephen Hendry uh, an incredibly exciting player we interviewed I interviewed him on this podcast and made the point because it's not often made about Hendry what a natural talent he must have been you know he started playing at 12 at 16 or 17 he was at the Crucible you, just can't, you just can't believe that actually happened I mean it's, it's absolutely mind blowing think back actually as we're talking about the 90s let's talk about the first world final of the mm. 90s Hendry and White I mean, was there a single safety shot in the whole match? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about it was, it wasn't like they were just bashing the balls. They were going for everything yeah. and getting everything. Yeah. What was the average frame time? 12 minutes. 12 minutes, yeah. yeah, absolutely incredible. And it was, it was almost like, you know, the BBC just, uh, you know, needed to find stuff to fill up the end of programmes because the sessions were just coast. so short. They didn't have coast in those days. They didn't have right? coast in those days, thank <laughs> God. But, um, <laughs> no, it's a good programme, coast. But, um, yeah, eighteen twelve, it finished to Hendry. And, you know, White played pretty well in mm. that final. But, you know, you talk about a match to set the tone for the 1990s. Henry playing brilliantly and winning. White playing pretty well and coming up just short. We were to see a lot of that over the decade that was to follow. But certainly in terms, you know, never mind the players actually involved, the standard and the style of play in that final, you know, was very much a, a taste of what was to come over the decade. And, you know, you mentioned that 80s podcast that we did. Actually, we did that in Coventry as well. Mm. seems to be something about it. Um, I was saying in that that, to me, I always regarded the 90s actually as yeah. more of a golden age. And uh, you know, I definitely, uh, definitely still feel that looking back on it. Yeah. Well, let's, con- let's continue on Hendry because he, he not only did he come along out of the blue and, and and just start winning everything, but he changed the style of play. He was a game changer because you look at the top players now, all of them. You look at the top sixteen now; they all play the attacking game. They didn't all used to play that. It was a much more cautious yeah. game. You'd get some Jimmy White in particular, but obviously the, the O'Sullivans, the Higginses, and everyone else you can think of. They looked at what Hendry did and thought, okay, that's the way to play snooker. He changed the game. I mean, you know, a lot of people who don't know that much about snooker think Hendry was a sort of a dull player (laughs) and, uh, you know, was more tactical. They kind of assume he was more in the mould of Steve Davis. Not that Steve was all that dull anyway. But Hendry changed the game. I mean, you know, you think of the the number of times you see players, you know, they run out of position a bit. The blue is on the spot. They're maybe about four feet away from the blue, but they just smack it into the mm. yellow or green pocket. And, you know, sometimes you don't even see a round of applause for that anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, back in the 80s, that would have been shot of the championship. Mm. Henry brought that kind of thinking in. It wasn't Jimmy. It wasn't mm. Alex. Um, also, the thing, you look back at snooker from, you know, say, 35 years ago or whatever, players are developing the Reds one at a time. Mm. It's almost like they regard the pack as a sort of nuclear bomb. They don't want to, <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to disturb it before they absolutely have to. Um, Henry, completely the opposite of that. Almost, you know, you could have four or five Reds out in the open already, but he'd st- already still be thinking, if the chance is there to go into the pack, I'm going into it. And the whole culture of trying to win a frame in one go, that was actually quite a rarity mm. prior to that era. Um, now, you know... Right from the start of a frame, you're looking at uh, thinking, okay, whoever gets in first here, they're going to be trying to win it in one go. Mm. And again, that is all down to the fact that Hendry set out to play that way and was able to play that way so well uh, throughout the 90s. I think also what made him special, and I'll declare an interest here, I was a Jimmy White fan in all those finals, but but that's kind of by the by. But what made Hendry... I think important was he was young. So if you yeah. were an up-and-coming player, it was kind of attainable. You weren't watching some 40-year-old who'd been mm. doing it forever. You were watching someone maybe not that much older than you 
And you'd think, well, why can't I give it a go? And of course, a lot of people did. A lot of people, certainly in Scotland, you know, you look at the snooker yeah. in Scotland. Before Hendry, they had professionals, but they were not tournament winners. And all of a sudden, just a flood came through. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the fact then that um, Hendry was just so dominant in the big events in the 90s, because, you know, whatever about other tournaments coming in, it's the world, the UK and the Masters, they're the ones that get most attention. You think of that period, you know, around about the middle of the 90s, it was very rare that he would play in one of those and not win it. Yeah. I mean, to win five world championships in a row, and of course most of them against Jimmy White. Um, it, but also, he, he, but that's the thing, and he said this, he used to expect to win them. That's, yeah. and, I, and I like that. It wasn't yeah, arrogance. Yeah, it was yeah. just he knew he was the best player. There were certain... There no world, doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there were certain world championships. I think we all knew. Yeah. I think 93, mm. I seem to remember about the second round, you thought, there's no way... He's not going to win this championship. And then that kind of became a bit of an anti-climax. And, you know, as much as, you know, a huge Hendry fan, and I was supporting him in all those finals, and, you know, he did great things for the game and was a huge role in its development and great ambassador for the game and all those things. I think among the wider public, his dominance maybe took away a bit of the interest because mm. he was just so good. You think the 80s World Championships, Dennis Taylor, Joe Johnson, great stories like that. He was stopping stories like that from happening, you know. Don't blame him at all for that. That was what he was there to do. But I think it maybe did take away from the interest among the general public for a while, just because he was expecting to win, as you say, and everyone else was expecting him to win. And for five years in a row, he did always win. Well, that's Stephen Hendry. Everyone knows. Let's. We're here to be niche, aren't we? We're not here. Oh, to, yeah. We're not here to celebrate the. No better event. men. Yeah. <laughs> The 93 World Championship you mentioned, I, I remember, and the, this shows you how innocent the times were. This was like pre-internet, pre-Twitter, pre-all of that nonsense. David Vine, the BBC presenter, I think it was 93, it might have been 94, it was one of the two. David Vine, the presenter, opened up the first broadcast, I remember this clearly, and he said, I've written down who oh, I think yeah. is going to win the World <laughs> Championship. <laughs> and he, right. he wrote down a name, put it in the envelope, and you assume you're never going to hear anything about it again, it's just something he's, he's thought of the first morning. But literally, literally at the end of the tournament, he opened the envelope, and it was Alan McManus, who didn't win it. Mm. I mean, can you imagine these days that happening? First of all, it, it would... He wouldn't do that. He'd put some Twitter poll up or yeah. something and ask people what they thought because he would think, why, why should I give my opinion? But also, quite possibly, would, would just on the last day, would open the envelope and write down Stephen Hendry or something on it. Yeah. But no, he... he and think, little things like that, you kind of, for some reason, you remember, or we do. Yeah, and, <laughs> and if he did open it up and he was wrong, people would be getting on Twitter calling for him to be sacked yeah. for getting it wrong. Yeah. Of course, he'd also have to explain to a lot of people on the first day what an envelope was, <laughs> you know? Uh, McManus, of course, I mean, you know, he was, he was a player who was coming through around that time, got to a World semi-final in, I think it was his second season mm. as a pro, and then again in 93. But he had so many guys like that just kind of bubbling under, um, you know, threatening the, the established order and, and breaking through very, very quickly. You look at Watanagar around that time, he came through very quickly. And it's just because, you know, these guys were so good that they just overpowered what was there before. There were a lot of guys who would have been reasonably high up the rankings, not talking top 16, top 32, anything like that, but guys about 60 or 70 in the world who weren't really very good players. Mm. So, you know, these but it was hard to break through because it was hard to break through because it was a bit of a closed shop. I mean, yeah, Alain Robidoux, They used to have this thing called non-tournament professional. Yeah. And it was kind of that that era's version of the top-up player. So you 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 kind of play, but you weren't a professional. But he he turned professional because he was in a tournament and he got two buys. Two, yeah. two opposed didn't turn up, so he got enough, I guess, merit points or whatever it was, mm. to turn professional. But what they then did in 1991 was, and here's the thing: the, the reason they did it, they opened the game up. So basically, if you could pay your money. Anyone could turn professional. Seven hundred odd people did. The reason they did it was because they were basically skin. And they mm. needed the money. That's all it was. It wasn't a great sort of um, you know uh, gesture to to make snooker available for all. They were skin. 
and they needed the money. But what a great decision in retrospect. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, that was what brought through um, the likes of O'Sullivan, Higgins, Williams. It brought through an awful lot of other players who, you know, might not have achieved very much in the game, but you know, guys who follow the game very closely and girls who follow the game very closely, you know, remember all sorts of, um, you know. I hate using that word characters, but, but I don't mean it in the sense that you often hear it used. Guy, but, you know, players who did come in and contribute a lot, because it was getting a little bit stale. Mm. There were so many tournaments and you were seeing the same players time and time again. But what a change it was to go from that 128 to just those summers of endless <laughs> qualifying matches. Yeah. They started off, actually, you know, people talk about the Norbrecht and that. The first year, there was actually a pre-Norbrecht Castle stage. In fact, I'm not sure it even was Norbrecht Castle, but before you even got to the main qualifiers... They had, uh, they were three clubs, I think it was Aldershot, Bolton yeah, right, and yeah. Sheffield. Three Norbrick, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, so you had to go and play in snooker clubs and uh, that was to even get to the stage where you were playing at, you know, uh, well, the venue before the mm. venue. So it was just a massive long slog. Labyrinthine, I think the word Labyrinthine is. Labyrinthine is exactly the word it is. And, you know, you talk, you, you listen to the young players now and they complain about various <laughs> things. But, I mean, the system oh, that those guys had to come brutal. through. But also, it helped the likes of O'Sullivan and Higgins and Williams that they were playing so many matches mm. against generally reasonably good players. Players who they were far, far better than. And they were beating generally quite easily. But they were still players who were reasonably worth beating. And they got match hard. It's like an apprenticeship, really. Yeah, exactly. But the only problem is, though, it just went on so long, people went stir-crazy. And not yeah. just the players. Because if uh, players, if they lost it in one tournament, they could go home for a few days. The officials and referees were there for months on end. And they, they started to go mad. There was one occasion where they, they Mike Gamley's now tournament director, I think then he was the press officer, and one, one night they just shaved off one of his eyebrows because they, they were just literally going mad. It was like being in the hotel in The Shining. They were just going, you know, because every day it's, it's like Rothman's Grand Prix, Dubai Classic, UK Championship, just, a, just an endless cavalcade yeah. of tournaments that kind of mean nothing in a way because you're not at the venue. There's no real audience there. But it's, you look back and, my word, how important for, for a lot of the top players because most of them, who were there just fell by the wayside. Yeah. Some of them weren't good enough. Some of them were good enough, but spent too much time drinking and not taking it seriously. I guess there was no blueprint for it, because it was a completely new thing. Yeah, it was unique to the 90s, actually, because that system only lasted six years, mm. because then they started reducing it and coming up with <coughs> different ways. And actually, that opening up of the game brought up a, another thing that was kind of a theme through the 90s. It was an age when there were certain people out there who believed that women's snooker was about to make a big yeah. uh, lift-off. And, of course, I think there were six women, Alison Fisher, Stacey mm. Hilliard, players like that, who were among the uh, players who came in uh, when the game went open. And huge things were expected of them. Barry Hearn signed a number of them. Mm. I think he said he was going to turn Alison into snooker's first millionaire-ess. It's not like Barry to make statements it's like not, that. It's not. It's not. It's <laughs> not. And, and, it, and it isn't like Barry either for him to make statements mm. like that that don't yeah, happen exactly. to come to pass and yeah. that didn't come to pass. Although he got, the, he got the Women's World Championship on Sky, didn't he? Which was, you know, you think now... Now, the women's game, you know, they, they all really do their best, but it's not, yeah. it's not high profile at all. But you no. got on telly. Yeah, I mean, it was on telly for a couple of years. I remember watching, I think, Karen Kaur winning it um, against Stacey Hilliard. But I think just the realisation eventually dawned on a lot of people that there just weren't any women players at that time. Now, you could argue that a woman could come along and be as good as any man, but there just weren't women players at that time who were good enough. And then the players realised that themselves and went off and did other things and played American pool. Um, Alison Fisher, of course, beat. She, she was given a place in the Matchroom League, and she beat um, Tony Mio, was it? She Mike Hallett and Neil, Neil as well. Neil she beat three players in one year, two of whom uh, you now work with yep. in Eurosport. Yep. So yeah, you must remind them of that. So yeah, that was just another little thing about the nineties as well. I remember there being a lot of uh, talk about women's snooker being a big growth thing, but uh, it didn't quite happen. Well, Alison, Alison was a very talented player. Yeah. As you say, once you get into that mire of qualifying, it's tough. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's, there's so many players around. But you mentioned Barry Hearn, which brings us neatly onto the. 
1991 World Masters oh, yeah. Birmingham NEC. Now, this was billed as the Wimbledon of snooker, and they took that literally because they had this crazy thing where, you know, obviously at Wimbledon, you've got to, in the, in the final set, you've got to win by, by two games. There's no sort of tiebreak. They, they took that to extremes. They actually had a tiebreak, didn't they, mm. which killed all drama because, I'd say it was first to six, five each, rather than play a deciding frame, which is always interesting. A decider is always interesting. They put, I think they put the red and the colour. Yeah, but there was no logic to it, though, because, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the one hand, you had to win by two frames, right? Mm. So you had to be, be a clear win. On the other hand, if it was level, the tie would be broken by... Mm. It was a little more than a toss of a coin, really. The thing about... I think we talked about this before, because, ironically enough, it was on Eurosport. Yeah. And I think you said you didn't have Eurosport at no, home. No, I didn't. No. But I did at that time, because for some reason, every home in Ireland... I have it now. Eurosport listener, I have it now. I watch it all the time. But <laughs> So you, you weren't actually aware of, of this thing that they had done during that. Because the way it was, they put the red on the... Uh, halfway down, the side cushion mm. on the green side, and all the colours, and basically played the frame from there. But the thing I remember... Um, was that when Eurosport was showing this, because it was a shootout, they actually had a graphic as it was starting of a sort of Wild West gunman yeah. walking <laughs> onto the screen it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. shooting two guns in yeah. the air. You know. Classy times. And, pe- <laughs> and people said it was a gimmick. <laughs> but the thing about that, because I went to the first day, because I lived in, in the Midlands yeah. it was in Birmingham, and it, 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 was, it seemed very exciting because there had been a lot of press about it. There had been controversy, actually, because yeah. Barry had uh, invited Alex Higgins, who at the time was banned by the WPBSA mm-hmm. for... A, what they called a litany of offences, and Stephen Hendry threatened to pull out the tournament. He said, "If Higgins plays, I'm not playing." And they went with the with Hendry, understandably, he was world champion. But the, the reason they called it the Wimbledon of snooker it wasn't just that tiebreak stuff. They had men's singles, women's mm. singles, men's doubles, women's doubles, mixed doubles, a junior event. It was just everywhere you looked, there was, there was something happening. They wore coloured waistcoats. Yeah. And the first day they had an opening ceremony. Now this wasn't exactly London 2012, but they, they did their best. They got a load of women basically carrying, they weren't flags, but they were sort of signs with the names of the countries because they found players from all parts of the world, quite a few of whom it seemed had never seen snooker before. No. They kind of been, been probably tricked into coming over or something. And the first match was Steve Davis, who was still very much a top player then, against Fred Davis, who of course... You know, a great player in the post-war era, but at that point was in his 70s and seemed to enjoy being out there, but was was never going to win. But what I remember about it was at the start, um, it wasn't packed on the first day because obviously it was a new event, no one knew, knew anything about it. And Barry Hearn actually came out into the arena and said, can you can you all move down the front? <laughs> Which uh, some tournaments now they could do with someone saying that, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was kind of a surreal event. They lost a lot of money on it. I think Barry would accept that. And it was one of those great ideas that maybe needed a bit of finessing. Well, it was worth a go, wasn't mm. it? Because people had talked about it for a while, you know, snooker should have an event like this. The first thing, of course, is you need a massive venue to have it in because you've got all those tables, and if you're going to have big crowds, then you're going to obviously need a huge venue. Uh, it was very international flavour. They really were very keen to make it that, and I think it needed to be that. Um, but it was something that was worth a shot. Nobody but Barry would have made it happen, mm. you know? No. There's nobody else would have had that kind of vision and ambition. And it was worth having once... Could it have lasted in the long run? I don't know. I mean, the fact that it wasn't perhaps, you know, on BBC or ITV, maybe it would have had, you know, a higher profile at that Mm. time. Maybe it would have been easier to get sort of big sponsorship. Maybe it was even just a few years too late, you know, because, Mm. you know, you consider the the game was starting to just lose it. I mean, it was still hugely popular as it is now, but it was starting to slip a bit from where it had been in the mid-80s. Maybe that was the time to launch an event like that. Um... I mean, listen, you say people lost a lot of money. I'll tell you who didn't was Jimmy White. Mm. £200,000 for well, his prize. Is, yeah, and this is the thing, and this is kind of, again, why Barry 
of course now he's running snooker, but back then he was a manager, he's running matchroom, but why he's been important, because he got a £200,000 first prize for that, they had to force up the prize money for the World Championship, yeah. and suddenly the other big events had to up their game, otherwise suddenly you've got these invitation events which seem more important. There was the occasion as well in that tournament where James Watt and I had the maximum, and because... Mm. They had this sort of roving camera, which didn't didn't rove quickly enough to get to it, so they just didn't mention it, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. which is kind of funny. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting event, as like you say, it kind of it's almost like there was just too much going on, um, and also, I mean, mixed doubles. Do people really want to sit watching that? I'm not sure. Final maybe, but it's, a lot of snooker to be played before you sort of get that far. I remember when Steve Davis lost. I think it was Darren Morgan, maybe I could be wrong about that, but whoever it was knocked him out. It was a real epic match because they played very long matches actually, because it started off first to six and then. I think it was first to seven in the last 16, it gradually increased. He just played an epic match. I mean, you can imagine Steve Davis and Darren Morgan playing whatever mm. it was, first to eight. Mm. All in one go, by the way. It wasn't mm. split sessions. And then I remember him being interviewed after the match. He looked exhausted and he said, I've got to go out to Alison for the mixed doubles now. Because he was playing with Alison Fisher in it. Was it Jimmy White won it and Karen Core? I think yeah, they maybe won I think the White doubles. beat Drago in the final. Yes, White beat Drago in the um, in the singles final, but then he did win the mixed doubles. I think it may have been with Karen Cole yeah. as well. Hendry and Mike Hallett won the men's doubles. They did. They and beat, here's the thing, yeah. this, and this is probably the most interesting of it all: the junior event, which kind of was not very high profile. Yeah, a young lad from Scotland called John Higgins came yes. down, and he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Williams to win the tournament. Quinton Han made a century break in it, which I think may have been televised. He did, and when he was asked by uh, one of the journalists for an interview, he told them where, he told them where to stick it, but <laughs> who knows why, but that kind of, the signs were there all round. Well, was he was setting the tone, wasn't he, for the rest of the 90s. But, it, you know, it was, it was a very uh, unique thing to the 90s. Nobody's attempted anything like it. Mm. It was on the calendar for the following season, right. but uh, only in a sort of provisional sort of sense, and then when January came around and it didn't happen again, it was sort of uh, quietly forgotten. It was probably a good time of year to have it as well because it was just after Christmas. People maybe aren't going out; they're staying in. You know, two weeks it went on as well, so there was certainly plenty of snooker to be watched, but uh, never to be repeated, unfortunately. Well, it's also never to be repeated. Now, do you remember this? Uh, this was another Barry's ideas. There used to be a show a lot of people remember called Big Break on on Saturday night. Oh yeah. yeah, Jim Davis and John Virgo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big game show, very popular. Mm. And ITV obviously thought, okay, we'll have a piece of that. And Barry came up with something called Ten Ball. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> I've, 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 oh, yeah. I've set you off here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't actually remember a great deal about Philip it. Schofield presented Yeah, it. no, I do remember that. And and it was most of the top players mm. were on. And it was on prime time, wasn't it? Was it was on the same yeah. time as Big Break. There was one, I'll never forget this, there was one occasion, it was April, during the World Championship, BBC One, you had Big Break, BBC Two, you had the World Snooker Championship, <laughs> and ITV, you had Ten Ball. <laughs> the, the thing about it was that I remember, I mean, Big Break, I actually liked Big Break, yeah. because it was... It was Harmless enough. Exactly. And it only set out to be just fun yeah. and entertaining. Got the players on... Primetime telly. But ten ball, it was like they were trying to invent a new sport. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't that kind of light-hearted thing. They, they almost went the other way. It was. You see it so often. You've seen, we've seen it with Power Snooker and lots of other things. People are trying to find answers to questions nobody's asked. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with snooker. And, obviously, OK, they, they, don't want, like, they didn't want like a main snooker tournament on a Saturday night. But it just seemed like, you know, oh, how can we make it different? Mm. And usually when people ask that, you, you find trouble. Yeah, exactly. Well, they did. <laughs> as you, as you once said, there's nothing wrong with thinking inside the box. <laughs> But something else that something else that came and went. So Pop Black was um, obviously set snooker on its way into yeah. TV in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it, it sort of ended up surplus to requirements because there were so many tournaments. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wanted it, but for yeah. some reason they brought it back in the 90s, and they had a, I think, a couple of years of playing it yeah. the old way. And then I think what they realised was it was very hard because the programs were half an hour. Very hard to control how long a frame would be. In the new era, frames were over in like eight, nine minutes. Yeah, yeah. So how can how can we make sure that we get half an hour of snooker? And they came up with this thing called Pop Black Time Frame. 
Now this is this is dark and niche stuff. Oh, anyone remembers so. this, you know, yeah. see, see, seek help. Yeah. But but um, what it was, it was a bit like sort of chess, wasn't it? Because you'd play your shot and then you'd have to press a clock. Each player had fifteen minutes to play within yeah. a half an hour. So you played your shot and then you went and reset the clock. But of course, players just kept forgetting. But you had to run back. Well, they, they kept forgetting. You had to run back to your chair. To press the yeah. button. So, and I mean, some of the players who were around were quite... Terry Griffiths was yeah, not there. <laughs> some of them were quite portly gentlemen mm. as well, you know, and they had to run back to their seats, um, press the button. Also, there was no logic to it, because obviously, if you're in play making a break, you're going to spend time at the table, but you're getting penalised for it. Yeah. So what happens is, once you'd used up your, whatever it was, we'll say it was 15 minutes, once you went over that time, you started to lose points. So you were actually yeah. losing points for still being at the table. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. You talk about niche, right? They ran some adverts in the magazines, Pop Black, Snooker Scene, and I don't think Q World was still around by that stage. I'll give you a million pounds here and now, Dave, if you can tell me which two players featured in that promotional campaign. I think I know this. Oh, dear. I Better get the checkbook out. One was Willie Thorne. And I think the other was Jonathan Birch. Oh, dear. So, it's an expensive podcast for me, this. That's exactly right, yes. What a shame you don't have a million pounds. <laughs> you can pay it over, over a period of maybe okay. 200 years. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, that, you know, I think that's said quite a bit. That, you know, <laughs> no disrespect to either of them. Well, Willie was a well-known player, yeah. but Jonathan Birch, with all, you know, with all respect, you know, was, was not a top player. So the fact that they either didn't have the money, maybe that made it a ridiculous million pound bet or something, or couldn't get a top player to do it, I think you know, that wasn't a good start. But the, the fact that the BBC mm. put it on, you know, in, in, just in seemed, the afternoon. It just, seemed, it just seemed odd, because it wasn't like it was live anyway. They could have edited maybe some features into the half an hour, or don't have half an hour, or whatever. Yeah. But, or, or, I mean, in the old days of Pop Black, they, you basically say to the players, but this has got to, the match has got to last this long. I mean, mm. yeah. it's probably too late to ring the integrity hotline now, but that's <laughs> what it was, because that's kind of how it was accepted. Well, here's the thing, though. I'm fairly sure it was the first televised tournament that Ronnie O'Sullivan played in as a professional. Okay. He played in junior Pop Black as yeah. an amateur, I think, the previous year, and I'm fairly sure he won it. The first match, as I recall, of Pop Black time frame, with its bizarre rules, was it was 92 it was played. The first match, I think, was Steve Davis against Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yeah. And uh, Ronnie won it very easily, and they did the interviews. Maybe Eamon Holmes was presenting it. They did the yeah. interviews after the match, and Ronnie was very excited about it all. Yeah, great, first time on TV, I've beaten Steve, all fantastic. Didn't threaten to retire, he's still a little bit away from that at that stage. But I remember Steve saying, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, I've been, uh, I've been taking some steroids and doing lots of running and everything. And, uh, you know, just showing that he hadn't taken the thing seriously at all. Because, it, I mean, it was just a ridiculous idea. It was only played once. Uh, I think they filmed, back. they've actually filmed the junior pop black version and never transmitted it. Oh, really? That's right, yeah. Mm. It's probably out there somewhere in some vault. Do you, do you remember who won time frame? It was Neil, wasn't it? I don't know, actually. I think Neil Fultz okay. won. And they had a yeah. seniors pop black played they under, did. The, under the proper rule. And actually, it was a really classy event. They played it in some stately home. They got all the old guys back. Uh, this was sort of late 90s. I think 97, Joe, John, Joe yeah. Johnson won it, I think. He did, yeah. 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 And they showed that, um, sort of. I think it was about 5 o'clock mm. in the evening uh, yeah. on the BBC. So that was good. So obviously, it never came back again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing. If you were going to have... If you were going to have a seniors event, maybe that was the way to do it, make it short matches, and maybe that was you know what Pop Black needed to be at that stage. I think it was just that one year they had it, and I think the commentary team was Clive Everton and Ted yeah. Lowe together. Probably the only time that they commentated. I'd say almost certainly yeah. the only time they commentated together. Here's the thing: Do you remember this is late nineties? Do you remember on cue with Steve Davis and our friend Phil Yates? I still have nightmares about <laughs> it. <laughs> the thing about that was it was, and that was another good show because yeah. what they did, they just dug out the old tapes, the old finals. And the, the plan was they were going to get Steve to talk about them. 
and Phil was like a, a, a sort of consultant, so he went down to sort of look over the script and whatever. But when they got down there, they thought, well, it might more sense to have Steve talking to someone. Yeah. So Phil got sort of dragooned into coming on to camera, which was fine, but they filmed him over a number of days, and he basically only bought one sort of sweater with him. So if you watch it, he's wearing the same thing in every episode, not his fault. But that was a nice little show as well, and that got huge viewing figures. It yeah, got like it, two million in the afternoon. It did, yeah. You know, <laughs> and I mean, again, that just showed how TV companies still really wanted, mm. you know, a, you know, so much snooker, so much snooker programming. I think I remember Phil saying that that wasn't anything to do with the BBC Sports Department. No. It was BBC Education. Yeah. I think it was. It just showed <laughs> me the profile of Educating the Educating the youth. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So th- there were so many things like that. There was still a huge amount of. I mean, nowadays, I mean, it really is more or less just the just the tournaments, which is still well, great. I, but, but you know but all these I, other things. I, I think what it was in the nineties, you were close enough to the eighties not yeah. to not to actually have forgotten it all and be yeah. sort of ridiculously misty-eyed and romanticised about it. You actually players were still playing and the memories were still fresh and they hadn't become sort of almost mythologised. You know, whereas I mean, you wait now and, and it's a great thing that it's forty years at the Crucible, but mm. the amount of stuff that's going to be talked oh, about yeah. the good old days. Well, actually now, I mean, the World Championship this year is going to be fantastic. Yeah, well, that's a fact. I mean, look at the last couple of tournaments yeah. we've had, the Scottish and the UK. I mean, just unbelievable. Mm. You know, one chance snooker so much of the way. But I think things like on cue and just what you were saying there about it, you know, the, the 90s, it was maybe like, you know, we all knew the 80s were never going to be repeated in terms of the game's profile in the UK. And I think in a sense, maybe we were all trying to figure out where snooker was going to stand in the, in the, yeah. in the firmament going forward. And programmes like that were maybe, uh, maybe part of that. Also, I think in general, and this is where we sound like we're sort of old and, and you know, kind of it was all better in our day and all that, mm. but the 90s were a great decade in general. It was a time when di- sort of digital technology was coming in, but it hadn't overtaken people. You know, you might, so in the late 90s, people started using the internet and whatever, but it wasn't like something that they checked first thing in the morning, it wasn't on their phones. It yeah. was there and it was available to you, but it hadn't taken over people's lives to that extent. You know, the whole Britpop thing was fantastic. You know, if you, if you were... Uh, English year in 96 and all that. You had things like Tear Five Friday and all this sort of stuff. People seemed to enjoy themselves in the 90s. And then, you know, what, what we see now, we're, we're, we're living in challenging times, I think it's mm. fair to say, which mm. backs up the inauguration of Mr. Trump and all the rest of it. And I don't know, it's, maybe it's just because, again, looking back misty-eyed, but they seem more innocent times. And I think the snooker sort of scene reflected that as well. Yeah. I was just watching that movie, actually, the other day, Supersonic. I saw the that Oasis as well, yeah. Movie. It was really yeah. good. It was very yeah. good. And uh, they were talking about it. it all built up to that big gig at, at uh, Nebworth. And Noel yeah. Gallagher, who comes out with some really you know, intelligent comments mm-hmm. from time to time, he was saying how that was almost the end of that pre-digital age. Exactly. You know, the idea of having, what was it, 250,000 people? It was a natural gathering. He said, yeah, he said, at the, right at the end, he said it, it was a natural gathering that wasn't contrived by reality TV or, or Twitter or Facebook or anything. It was a coming together of people because they shared that interest. Yes, and, yeah, I think that ties in with what, what, with what you're saying about about snooker and you know you, you couldn't have you know again people go back to those days when it was so massively high profile there's nothing like that now mm. and there can't be anything like that now because the world has changed too much and in the 1990s which is what we're here to talk about uh, snooker was going through that sort of uh, transitional phase and here we are now at a tournament that's uh, set up to be Shown exclusively on the internet. Our times have moved on. We're at the Championship League. By the way, yeah. I should say I'm not anti-internet at all. No, I'm just, no, I'm just no. pointing out how times have changed. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and of course, you know, you start to meet people in their twenties, and, and they don't remember the time. They don't remember the nineties, and they don't remember a time before now where you're just like on Instagram and you're on this and yeah. on that. Anyway, uh, someone who's probably not on Instagram, but I wanted to mention was Doogie Donnelly <laughs> because Doogie he's kind of forgotten in the whole yeah. presenting thing, but he came along very much as the sort of number two to David Vine in the early nineties and proved himself to be a great pro, a really good guy as well, 
And I think, unfortunately for him, when David Vine retired, and that would have been early part of the 2000s, yeah. Doogie was in line to, to take over and, and did briefly. And then the whole BBC thing changed and they got in Davis and Parent, whatever, and he was sort of jettisoned. But what a, good, what a great pro he was. Yeah, he was. And, and, you know, I would absolutely echo what you were saying about what a good guy he was. I met him at a number of the championships in the, in the early days of being around. They, they tried a number of different people. Eamon Holmes, who I mentioned earlier. Tony Gubba, who's uh, no longer with us. Yeah. He did some some snooker presenting in the 90s. It, it was a big high-profile thing to be presenting snooker, um, very much so at that time. But, uh, yeah, no, Do- Doogie was very good. He got on top of the brief. I think he's more a golf man, and that's, that's yeah. what he's involved in now. But uh, He, he was a good interviewer. He was, he was a very he, good he interviewer. He made put yeah. people at ease and yeah. got some good stuff just to sort of gentle probing. Yeah, yeah. It was much like this podcast. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, th- that was the other thing as well. I mean, you know, snooker's role on television was, was actually changing, and... Um, the, the, the days of maybe just dawn till you know late at night uh, from the World Championship were maybe changing. Mm. They were scaling back a bit. BBC used to show a lot of uh, live um, Parliament in those days as yeah. well. And that always seemed to interrupt the snooker uh, too. Well, because um, they didn't. Well, this is the thing because it was pre-digital, so they didn't have the Parliament. Yeah. channel. they didn't have the news channel and all that stuff. Yeah. So <clears> the, the the way it was it was being covered on television was changing a bit. There was a move more towards you know real late night programs. Mm. I remember so many. I mean, it was just as well we were young in the nineties, Dave, because. You know, the snooker often didn't come on until maybe half past midnight. Mm. You, know, you needed a bit of stamina yeah. uh, to be able to, uh, to to watch it to that time. But actually, it was towards the end of the 90s that that all started to change again. And, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the, the older days. It wasn't until, I think, 1996 that the BBC started to show the final session of every final live. Yeah, yeah. It used to be just highlights That's up right, until yeah. then. So the, they... It, they, they still really wanted it. They, they still saw its possibilities. They saw that maybe the figures had declined a bit, but they still saw the potential in it, and they really did try to do that revamp and show a lot more live snooker mm. uh, towards the end of, of the 90s. Well, I'll tell you who didn't want it, ITV, because oh, yeah. uh, they kicked it into touch in the other yeah. 90s. It, uh, we, I think we touched on this before. We it's, did. It's probably possible for them to schedule it with all the regions. You, of course, had that glow on your TV. People, yeah, people I did. Remember yeah. That. <laughs> so they, they left the stage, but who came in was Sky, and of course Sky oh, at yeah. that point were new and were trying to do things differently, and actually, I mentioned earlier on about you know people who, who try and do things differently, actually they were great innovators in all mm. sports, I mean you look at football, they completely changed the way that was covered, and Snook as well, they started to not change the game, the game was left the same, but yeah. it became maybe more of an experience watching, they had little things like lights, a bit of music and a bit of intro and whatever, and but also, most importantly, they showed hours and hours and hours of it. And it was live as well, because again, you know, just referring back to the previous point, at that time, there was very little live snooker on television. Even BBC showed very little of it. You know, even in afternoon sessions, there was very little of this coming on at lunchtime. They tended to come on maybe about three, four o'clock and show highlights of the afternoon. Sky changed that. I think the first event that they did as their own event as host broadcaster was the International Open, around uh, about Easter time, 1993. And they would come on from the start of play... They would show it live until it finished, no matter how long that took. And then they'd do the same throughout the evening session. I remember the final, actually, was Stephen Hendry against Steve Davis. They certainly got a, got a good final mm-hmm. for their first event. And Davis lost, I think, 10-6 in the final. And he actually made a point in his interview. I think Gary Norman was the, was the presenter's name. And he made a point in his interview before they signed off of turning to him and saying, I just want to say about Sky, great coverage. Yeah. And I think that was what, uh, what we all felt um, but is, about isn't, it. But isn't it ironic now... As we speak now in 2017, ITV have come back in a massive yeah. way and are showing, yeah, yeah. doing really well with their coverage. And yeah. Sky don't show any, yeah. literally none. Everything comes back around, doesn't mm. it? It was really timely, you know, because ITV's contract ended in uh, '93, 
and they decided they weren't going to show snooker anymore. And that was at exactly the point that Sky had just come along. They just mm. got the Premier League football. They were looking for more events and different sports to show. They used to show um, the overseas events as well, things like Dubai, uh, the European Open. I think they even showed that live. Yeah. Dubai was maybe on a, on a bit of a delay of, of a day or two. So it was very timely that they came in at that time. <coughs> and they became a huge part of the circuit. They also had the, uh, the International Open, uh, which I seem to remember John Parrott winning at <coughs> Bournemouth. Um, so, sorry, that was the International Open I was, I was referring to. So that was a new event. But they also then took on the British Open from ITV. I remember Ronnie winning that. It was one of the first tournaments he won. Um, so it was very important because w without that, it really just primarily in terms of showing events in a big way would have been the BBC. And, of course, Sky stayed around for, for a number of years. And you mentioned the, the music there and, and the walk-ons. You know, when Barry came into the game and said he wanted to introduce sort of walk-ons mm. at the Crucible and at the Masters and things like that, and people were saying, oh, it's a revolution in the <laughs> game and the traditionalists aren't going to like this. Actually, Sky had been doing it for almost 20 years at that stage, and they really were very good at building up the atmosphere of a big event, and, of course, by showing it live, it really enhanced it as well. And a lot of the early sort of breakthrough moments for players like Higgins and mm. Williams and O'Sullivan, it was on Sky that we watched them. Yeah, and I'll tell you who else did well out of it, Phil Yates, because, oh, yeah. um, and this happened started at the World Masters, because they had, I think, mainly football commentators originally doing it. Peter and, Brackley, yeah. Yeah, and it turned out, you know, they did their best, but they didn't know anything about it. So mm. about halfway through the tournament, they, uh, Phil's told this story before, they, they sort of went in the press room and said, does, you know, does anyone want to audition? And they found this tape of a, I think a snooker match that had never been broadcast. They found a, a thought, we, we, we need to like, as if it's a live match, we'll get them to, to commentate as an audition. But they won't have seen it because it's never gone out. Turned out Phil had seen it. So it was, it was literally like Steve Newbury against Ian Brumby or something in some, some match in the yeah. in like first round of the Grand Prix. And he'd seen it and could remember the shots. And so he sort of commentated, you know, did this great audition, got the gig. And of course, he's, he's still doing it now. Yeah. Let's talk, because uh, we've got to sort of wrap up soon, let's talk about actually visiting snooker tournaments oh, yeah. in the 90s. So your first experience would have been when? 1993 uh, was the first time. 25th of March, actually, I seem to okay. think, remember yeah. the date was. Irish Masters, obviously. The Irish Masters, yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't live that far away from Goffs, but it was kind of an awkward place to get to. Mm. Um, and it was always during school time as well, so it was, it was a difficult thing to, uh, to actually get to. But eventually, 93, I made up my business, right, I'm going to go there and watch this. And um, it was unusual because I was actually standing, because Goffs yeah. is, I'm pretty sure, the only venue where you actually have standing. And uh, the place was sold out. Jimmy White against Alan McManus. McManus won the match by uh, five frames to two. And I actually found, I don't know what you found, but the first time I went there, it really was very different to watching mm. it on television. There's no commentary for a start. Uh, now, you maybe have the earpieces nowadays, but you certainly didn't then. Uh, and you saw so much oh, more. Yeah. You yeah. really did. Well, you could choose could choose what to look at, basically. Yeah. I think it's always fascinating looking at the guy in the, in the chair. Yeah. <laughs> and what he's going through. I mean, I, I mean, I went to the Crucible a couple of times in the early 90s, and... The, the inevitable thing happens, you walk and you think, how can it be this small? Because you've only ever seen it on TV. I'll tell you something else as well, in those days, there was less sort of backstage stuff done. So yeah. it was kind of a mysterious place. You didn't really know the Crucible. You only mm. ever saw the arena. But I saw a couple of matches. And there was less kind of fanfare at the start. You know, Rob does his thing now. But in those days, basically what happened is Alan Hughes would come out. You wouldn't have to talk about mobile phones, because there weren't any. Mm. Um, and would do his very professional intro. And then you'd sort of get going again. Um, but just also hanging out, sort of, you know, upstairs in the like the cafe area and whatever, 
you'd occasionally see a player come out, put a bet on or something like that. The or, thrill of it. Like, yeah. yeah. And the you, thrill in of their dress that. suit as yeah. well. You just yeah, think, yeah. wow, these people are, yeah. exist away from the table. It's incredible. <laughs> and you see them just sort of walking normally around the place and you think, why are you walking normally? Shouldn't he have a different walk or something? Cliff Thorburn, what are you doing? What are you doing just talking to members of the public? But yeah, I mean, it was great live experience and uh, you know I think a lot of people don't don't appreciate that they kind of maybe just watch snooker on TV all the time and don't actually understand uh, that there's a lot to be got out of going to the venue but of course you were hardcore you had, you had been there in the 80s hadn't you I'd been there in the there? 80s yes yeah. I went to a match in league match um, at Walsall Town Hall well known cathedral of sport um, Jimmy White Neil Folds and the thing about that was it was they played eight frames oh yeah uh, and I'd only ever been used to watching matches that were won mm. so I got to four each you think right here comes the mm. decider or maybe they'll just put a red on the colours on yes. the table here comes the decider and then I don't think it occurred to me before that it was just eight frames and then they just stopped and I thought well, wow that's a bit of an anticlimax mm. but I also went to um, Trentham Gardens in Stoke to the International mm-hmm. um, and the thing about that was I think James Watt and I had just been in the final in Thailand against Hendry oh yeah and They'd drawn each other in an early round, and we thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic. But we hadn't factored in the fact that lots of other people thought the same thing, so yes. we sort of sidled up there with about ten minutes to go. The place is packed, and you couldn't get a seat for it. So we had to watch the next match along, which was Terry, <laughs> Terry Griffiths against Steve Newbury. Now, no offence to either of those. <laughs> Terry's great, but he was sort of declining at that time. And, yeah, it wasn't... It wasn't you could keep hearing all these cheers and whoops and hollers from, from Henry Watson. I wouldn't see a ball of it. Who would have thought Steve Newbury would get two mentions on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. There, were, there were a lot of players like that, you know, sort of. That was another thing about the 90s. Because Newbury was actually a very, very good player. Mm. Semi-finals of the Mercantile, um, a few other good runs at tournaments. Gave Steve Davis a good match at the Crucible, I seem to remember once. A lot of those guys... They were still hanging around in the 90s and could still get the odd decent result. And even, in fact, you know, the, the very good players. I mean, I seem to remember Cliff Thorburn getting to a semi-final in 1995. Mm. Uh, Dennis Taylor, around the same time, got to the Liverpool-Victoria final. So there were, there were a lot of players who you know, had been around in the 80s who you kind of forget now were still, still knocking around in the 90s, still getting a decent result, generally by sort of grinding out matches and showing these young guys a thing or two about how it was all done. Uh, but I think maybe by the end of that decade, all of that generation had uh, had perhaps uh, had perhaps moved on. Well, we're going to end as we began with Stephen Hendry because he ended the nineties winning his seventh world title, and uh, well, we were there, and it was a very special occasion. Yeah. Because you did feel, you know, people say this, and you think, oh yeah, right, but you did feel it was a moment of history. Yeah. What one of my big regrets is that the last world championship I wasn't at was ninety seven. Mm. It was the one that Ken Doherty won, and it was a huge thing in Ireland. It would have been great to be there, but I'm so so glad that by 99 I was going there because I got to be in the arena to see Stephen Hendry win a world title. And uh, I think we felt, you know, none of us would have said at the time, Hendry definitely won't ever win another title. But looking back, we probably maybe felt it was the end of it. And, you know, it was 1999, people were obsessed with the end of the century, Mm. talking about millennium and and all the rest of it. And it really did feel like the end of, of an era. Uh, the fact also he was uh, in the final against Mark Williams, the semi-final he played Ronnie O'Sullivan. Uh, he had played a couple of other players along the way who you know, we knew were going to achieve a lot of success in the 2000s. This was sort of the last stand for Hendry. And don't forget, he had been a pro in the 80s and needed a tournament winner in the 80s. But he was maybe one of the last survivors of that. And uh, that was a great night and a great way to finish it in 99. Historic moment. Hendry was actually nominated for Sports Personality of the Year that year. Fairly sure that's the last time any snooker players had that. And I also seem to remember 
Dave, and this will depress us because there's no way we could do this now at the age of 40. Mm. I seem to remember we stayed up all night after that. Yes, <laughs> indeed, yeah, in the yeah in the Novotel Sheffield. Yes. What, 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 what great days. The thing yeah. I remember about that was that um, after he'd won, because I was the press officer at the time, yeah. unbelievably, mm. and... Um, John Carroll is, is, is for his management group because Stephen was doing lots of radio interviews and whatever, and he said, "Oh, can you hold this?" Oh yes, and it was his cue. I mean, why would you why would you give Stephen Hendry's cue to me to hold? I literally just stood still with it. I could I thought I can't move. Yeah. Well, if something happens to this, then it's the end of everything. Well, it's the end of this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure again what we've achieved, but if you were a snooker fan in the '90s, hopefully. You enjoyed that, and I guess in a year's time we'll be looking back on <laughs> on this millennium with with fondness, or maybe not. Who knows? Bring but, it on! Uh, bring it on, indeed. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you want to get mixed up in the family business? Introducing. The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.